This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Guy LaCharles Gonzalez. He's the project lead at the Panorama Project. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Steve. Glad to be here. Um, so I've been following the Panorama Project for quite a while, and you're kind of always on my radar of somebody to get on <laughs> to, to talk about it. Um, but can you give um, listeners a little bit of the background of the project and what it is and how you came to work for it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so big picture, Panorama Project is now a little over almost three years old. Um, It was originally conceived um, to gather data about the actual impact of public libraries um, on book sales. Over the years, there's been a lot of uh, varied, say, varied degrees of concern on the publisher side about libraries' impact on sales in general. You know, what does the free, free in quotes, circulation of books do to the need to go buy that book? And as ebook lending became a lot uh, smoother and more accepted and, you know, steadily was growing on the library side, um, it became a bigger source of revenue for publishers and as a result became a bigger source of concern for publishers as consumer ebook sales measured by the traditional side of the industry uh, plateaued and started to decline in the mid-teens you know, so from 2015, 2016 on, there was this kind of gentle but steady decline that, you know, uh, correlation is not causation, but some people pointed to, oh, but at the same time in that period, library circulation of ebooks was really growing. Uh, the other big change, of course, that happened was ebook pricing. You know, publishers, you know, won by losing the agency battle effectively. Um, and so consumer ebooks became more expensive. Amazon went out of its way to make it really clear <laughs> the price difference by putting the <laughs> print price right next to the Kindle price. Right. Um, so Panorama was uh, initially started uh, by Steve Potash at Overdrive as kind of an extracurricular uh, activity outside of Overdrive. He gathered an initial advisory council of uh, colleagues from across the industry, some publishers, uh, ALA is represented, uh, Cuyahoga County at one point was uh, directly represented. And the idea was kind of to come up with a way to measure, actually measure the impact libraries were having in as neutral uh, approach as possible. So outside of you know, overdrive specific efforts, uh, Cliff Guren, my predecessor, uh, was the first project lead and did a lot of good work in laying the foundation for how a data analysis, a data gathering and analysis initiative might work. I joined in the summer of 2019. I took over. And at that point, the decision was made to pivot away a little bit from overt data gathering uh, projects into more advocacy and engagement to really dig into 
you know, what were the real challenges publishers were facing? What were the actual questions they had that Panorama could answer? Uh, because some of the initial research Panorama had done kind of proved that, in an, at least in a controlled environment with specific titles, um, even extra library promotions, so like the, the big library read promotions, where every library, not just in the country, when Overdrive does that, it's a global uh, circulation thing. Um, but U.S. in particular, because Overdrive is so dominant in the public library space, that ebook for two to three weeks becomes freely available to all libraries, all patrons, no uh, wait lists. And publishers who participate in that program then worked with Panorama to provide sales data beyond what Overdrive could pr provide on the circuit library circulation side. And in each uh, version of that analysis, at best, there was a neutral impact, but definitely not negative. But in many cases, publishers saw a spike in both consumer sales, but also library sales to meet demand. Because once that limited window closed, so you, so you can say, okay, sure, everybody, can, if everybody can access that ebook through a library, A, that'll probably hammer consumer sales, and B, libraries won't have to buy any more copies because everybody's going to read them in, those th in that three-week period. The reality of books is the, the majority potential audience of any book is not front list at the point of release or even at the point of a major promotion. Those kinds of activities generate a lot of attention and activity. So uh, Where the Crawdads Sing is published in 2018. It's currently PRH's number one best-selling book in 2020. So what these experiments showed is that even with extra marketing in the library space, making the ebook even more available to library patrons, it still didn't have a negative impact on sales. It actually had a positive impact both on libraries subsequently buying more copies to, to meet the demand that that open access created, but then consumers, because everybody you know, might hear about that book from the library, but not be ready to read about it in those first three weeks. Well, you know, that book's gonna expire. I'm really interested. I'm gonna go buy it now, or I'm gonna go buy it a couple of weeks later. So the main one we featured uh, on Panorama was a book from Sourcebooks. It was a debut memoir. Uh, by the time they did the library initiative, I think it had been in the market for about a month already. It was not on track for bestseller status. It, it's what you would expect from you know, a debut memoir from someone who wasn't a celebrity. And that library initiative, the, the data showed all, you know, the sales spikes on both sides well after the um, library marketing initiative. The publisher did some of their own marketing to kind of continue that momentum, but there was clearly a six to eight week uh, tail coming out of that library promotion. Um, so those are one-off experiments that kind of prove libraries don't necessarily have a negative impact. The downside of those kinds of experiments is they're ultimately anecdotal. So one title or even five titles over a period of time don't really prove anything. Um, and what we were finding both before I joined and then pretty quickly I realized after I joined is that publishers, for a variety of reasons, the aggregating of broad sales data was something that was possible but not going to happen anytime soon. There were a lot of privacy concerns, which are understandable. There were a lot of you know, competitive concerns. There's always the looming concern on publishers' side of collusion. Um, so I quickly realized any big data initiative that kind of Panorama initially had envisioned it uh, being focused on 
was at least three to five years down the road. And in the meantime, we could look for ways to build foundations and bridges to the possibility of that happening. So when I came on board, we were initially making a pivot towards more advocacy and engagement. And then two weeks after I joined, Macmillan announced its ebook embargo uh, policy that really blew everything up, both you know, my original intended focus with Panorama, the industry's conversation around ebooks dramatically changed. Um, so I, we spent a couple of months after that figuring out, okay, we really need to change away from data because the one thing Macmillan proved is that ultimately a publisher can kind of say whatever they want about data and not necessarily have to prove it. And you know, I've made this argument a lot of times over the past year and a half, and even well before I joined Panorama, publishing is one of the most purposefully opaque industries when it comes to data. You know, the New York Times sales list is ultimately kind of meaningless because the number one book this week might have sold a million copies, and the number one book next week might have sold fifty thousand. And in a quiet period, you could hit number one with ten thousand copies. Whereas you look at any other medium, you know, you don't go to the box office list for movies back when, you know, there was a reason to go look at those numbers. And, you know, you see real numbers that are, have been vetted and approved by the industry. And you get to see that uh, variation from, you know, Avengers week one blows everything away. But there are all these other indie movies that they're not making a billion dollars but there's an audience for it. And publishing's obsession with bestsellers and particularly New York Times bestseller list um, kind of neutralizes a lot of all the nuance that really exists in publishing and puts this hyper-focused on bestsellers. And so what Macmillan's decision kind of made us made really clear to us was, you know, Amazon sits on the most data and they're not gonna share it willingly with anyone. And so if you can't overcome that obstacle, anything you're doing chasing data is always going to have a big asterisk on it. So that's when we made the shift and coming into 2020, we identified a couple of initiatives we wanted to focus on. And one was consumer research where there hadn't been a lot of focus really, you know, I kind of identified Pew Internet's research in 2015, 2016, where they really dug into libraries. That was the last time libraries really got any, you know, noteworthy national look from a consumer research perspective. And then when it comes to books themselves, you either get book-centric studies that pretend books exist in a vacuum and um, over-index on the most avid, you know, that core reader, the, you know, the self-defined by publishing middle-class white woman who joins a book club. That's kind of corporate publishing sweet spot for the core audience and everybody else's niche. Um, and so when a lot of consumer marketing studies are done specifically about books, they tend to over-index on that audience. Or when they're broader media studies, books tend to fall through the crack really quickly because you'll get the throw where 50% of Americans didn't read a book at all last year. Let's move on to talk about movies and gaming and all these other more fun media where there's a lot more uh, perceived engagement. So what um, what we proposed with this immersive media and reading study was, A, let's take a broader look at the consumer space, put books in a broader context of uh, related media. So we, we specifically defined immersive media to be similar to books, you know, where it's not background, you know, music and books aren't the same. You can listen to music and do a million other things. And that engagement is completely different from what it requires to read a book or listen to an audiobook. So we purposely chose uh, streaming 
you know, film and TV and gaming, which in publishing circles gets treated as a niche, despite the gaming industry literally being like five times bigger <laughs> than trade publishing. So, and the goal there was partly, hey, this research is important, but it was also if we can pull this off with cross-industry participation, we potentially establish a foundation for, okay, we've come together to develop this study. If nothing else, we can argue about the interpretation of the results, but there'll be no debating the methodology, uh, the questions we asked, how we uh, positioned all this because we worked together. So ALA was involved, BISG, Authors Guild, um, IBPA, and Pub West. Those five associations came together in partnership with Panorama and two researchers from Portland State University to ensure that the methodology and, and scope and focus of the survey would meet cross-industry purposes and not just be perceived as well as pro-library. Libraries are actually a secondary component of this research. Um, and then my hope is that by going through this process, we start to find other ways that the industry can collaborate. And then maybe five years down the road, this data gathering initiative can become a possibility. But in the meantime, we find some other ways that we can work together to collaboratively answer you know, mutually relevant questions. Yeah, I, I saw where you'd written, I think on your blog earlier about talking about that there's no credits in books. So that's one of the like, things, there's no, no transparency with that. And every other thing you can kind of see who's doing what, but you, you maybe get a cover design by this person <laughs> credit. And I, I bet I, I bet they had to fight for to get that on yeah. there too. And maybe um, a thank you of the editor in the acknowledgement. Right. Yeah. All that. Yeah. That thank you is like who should be the credits. <laughs> it's like they right. threw all those names in there, but it's like the, Can I know what they did exactly? <laughs> like who's the who's the proofreader? Who's the whatever? I mean, that, those are all important things, and I think that would even help um, publishing on their side to justify prices because a lot of times people are like, well, but an ebook should be just super cheap because that you're not printing it. It's like yeah, but the printing cost itself is not that big of a chunk of the cost of a book. Right. So you need to justify, well, I got a proofreader, I got an editor, I got a cover designer, I got a, there's lots of jobs that go into yeah. making a book other than somebody just writing it, throwing and it through Microsoft themselves. Word, running it through Grammarly or something. And then, yeah. Ebooks themselves also have their own production process. You know? Right. So yeah. People kind of forget, like you're, they're not just saving the Word document and sending <laughs> that to Amazon. Like, <laughs> right. There's an entire production process specifically to create that ebook as well. That also is not, you know, 50% of that price, right. but it's not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and do you think that the libraries and publishers kind of have a misunderstanding of each other? Like, do they, do they need to work more on trying to understand each other so that we can get through this? <laughs> yeah, one, one of the, thing, the things I found both in my prior experience, I worked for Library Journal and School Library Journal for four and a half years. Um, I ran Digital Book World for its first two years. And in its second year, helped introduce libraries to the, the ebook uh, conversation in the industry. The first year, digital book world libraries weren't on the agenda at all. And then the second year, we were able to bring them in. So, you know, th what I've seen firsthand is some of the bigger, all the bigger publishers have dedicated library marketing departments who understand libraries pretty well, respect libraries, appreciate what they bring both to the marketing table as well as to the sales table. Um, the problem in all of these big publishers is that knowledge and understanding kind of lives in that library marketing department and doesn't make it up the chain. So the consumer marketing department in many cases doesn't know the value of that library marketing arm. 
the executives certainly don't know the value of the library marketing arm. Um, so you get, you know, a John Sargent at ALA Midwinter facing, you know, face to face with a bunch of, you know, not happy librarians. And I give them credit for, you know, going into an open forum like that. But it was kind of amazing how they were talking past each other. He really didn't have a strong understanding, which you wouldn't expect the CEO of a huge company to understand the inner workings of, you know, library collection development. But librarians also don't really understand how publishing works, though I'd say on average, a librarian knows a bit more about publishing than your average publishing professional, including authors, know about how libraries work. So there's there's a lack of common knowledge of what each side, uh, how each side operates, which leads to a lack of common language when you're debating the impact, positive or negative, um, because no publisher, even John Sargent, no publisher discounts the value of libraries from a marketing perspective. And that's where libraries kind of sometimes get lost in uh, their arguments against publishers. No publisher uh, discounts that libraries are an extremely valuable marketing channel. Many of them would just rather see their books circulating a little less because in their mind, every circulation is a lost sale. And it's not very different from, you know, 10 years ago, the argument about piracy, not to equate libraries and piracy, but to equate publishers lack of understanding of how different markets work. They believed every pirated book was a lost sale, as opposed to what most uh, real research findings showed. Those were people who were never going to buy that book anyway. And you definitely, you know, do whatever legal mechanisms you have to take those books down because the pirating sites are illegal. But believing that every pirated book is a lost sale misunderstands, you know, that consumers are very different in what they choose to pay for it. And then you fast forward 10 years, you know, ebooks have matured. Uh, there is now a million ways and places to spend your money on digital content beyond books. You know, 10 years ago, you know, I personally was like, oh, Netflix wants to be HBO. That's cute. That'll never happen. <laughs> I was very wrong about that. And now I personally pay for like at least six different streaming services that I try not to think about. <laughs> you, know, you know, so much for the cable bill going down because we still have cable. So, um, so th- there are all those nuances in the market that publisher, any publisher laying the blame at library's feet. And what was really fascinating when uh, Macmillan first really pushed this is Overdrive surprisingly released some specific data about the number of Macmillan books in circulation, the average uh, number of checkouts for each of those books, which kind of, you know, and they left the last part unspoken. But for me, it's like, all right, you don't have a ton of books in circulation in libraries. On average, eight checkouts before they expire. If you're telling me eight checkouts in two years of an ebook is hurting your consumer sales, I think you might have a problem that's a lot bigger than library circulation. Yeah, so that's the part that goes unspoken, but libraries were the easy scapegoat. Well, and they always kind of, they, they've always tried to make it hard for that, it, for libraries to check those out. I mean, they even came, like talk about friction, that they're intentionally making it hard to, to, to check things out. And I feel like it's, it's a good parallel with the music industry of there was so much pirating going on forever until like iTunes and things like that made it easy to buy 
And so then people were like, oh, I'm happy to buy it. It's just, it was so hard before. And so I just couldn't, but now they're just 99 cents and I can just do click one little button. And so it seems like the harder you make it, the more people want to pirate <laughs> those kind of things. And the more easily available you make these things and easy to pay for it. Because again, I think most people are willing to pay for <laughs> content that they, that they find valuable. So. Yeah, and you know, for me, that's that ultimately is you know what music showed was if you fight consumer preferences, you're going to lose, you know. And the music industry ultimately stopped fighting it. They had to shift their business model, but you know, maybe to the surprise of no one, the big music labels of 20 years ago are still the big music labels of today. You know, they adjusted their bu- their business models. It's Definitely not been great for some artists, but at the same time, it's opened the door for a ton of artists who had no entry to the industry 20 years ago. So publishing, I think, is in a similar position right now where some publishers are fighting against changing consumer behavior instead of accepting that this is the direction things are going. And you know, at that first digital book world, Brian Napak, I think he was the president of Macmillan at that point did a whole presentation about how Macmillan was going to tackle piracy. And their fourth point was um, building a better consumer marketplace, basically acknowledging that part of the problem was it was too difficult. You know, the friction they wanted in libraries, they recognized was a problem more broadly. Libraries were not referenced at all in that presentation because at that point, Macmillan wasn't selling eBooks to libraries yet. They were still one of the holdouts and it's the point that ultimately they never uh, really addressed. You know, they, they kind of addressed it through Apple and that led to, you know, charges of collusion and they got into a lot of trouble and ultimately handed Amazon the ebook market as a result. So that piece, you know, the industry even recognized back then was a big part of getting the, uh, solving this problem. And in my mind, not only did they not do so well on the consumer side, <clears throat> they actually doubled down on the library side by making it e- wanting it to be as difficult as possible for libraries to circulate ebooks. Yeah, and the funny thing about the deal with Apple, the almost certainly conclu- collusion <laughs> that went on that on there, like they were doing that to try to break Amazon's monopoly, but they ended up making it even more so, more cemented. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I mean, and then Apple never really got. I mean, they're sort of still in iBooks, I think, but it's not really a big player there. And yeah, they they kind of had the, <laughs> the bad result there. Um, yeah. Some of it, I think just Steve Jobs being, well, I can just fix everything. <laughs> so I'm just going to, it's going to happen because I, I said it's going to happen. So it's going to happen. <laughs> there was definitely the, his savior complex combined with the industry looking for a savior rather than figuring out how to save itself. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the advisory council for Panorama project? Yeah. So the advisory council is a, um, a number of individuals from across the industry, I'm actually looking at our list just to make sure I don't leave anybody out, um, but they're representing publishers, uh, vendors, associations. We've got NISO is represented, Audio Publishers Association, uh, PRH, Open Road, Sourcebooks on the publisher's side, ALA, uh, I'm leaving someone out. Oh, Ingram is represented, Overdrive is represented, and the Cuyahoga County was previously through Sari Feldman. Um, she's still on the council. She's just retired. So she's no longer directly representing an individual library. But the 
the makeup of that council is basically to uh, be a sounding board for any potential projects. So like the two big projects we're working on this year, the consumer research and the marketing valuation, both of those went through a process at the end of last year to kind of talk through. We had about five different ideas we were looking at coming into this year. And the council, uh, their role is to really kind of dig into each of those, give feedback, positive and negative. You know, here's a publisher perspective on where this might be helpful, where you might run into issues as a publisher. Here's what we you know, maybe want to see in something like this, or you're not going to get anywhere with this because of X, Y, Z. So they're really literally an advisory council. They are not... Um, they're not like a board of directors where they have a final say on anything. Ultimately, I've been given, in some ways, surprisingly, uh, a lot of latitude in the direction things go. And they, you know, that's a credit to both the advisory council in their trust in me and you know, credit to Overdrive, who presently is the primary, you know, remains the primary funder for the project. You know, the other good thing about this research we're doing is not only did those associations partner in the development, but several of them, BISG, IBPA, ALA, um, chipped in money as well so that that research isn't also just funded by Overdrive. Uh, we got some industry participation in the funding of that as well. So their role really is kind of a personal advisory board for me to make sure that any ideas I come up with are vetted from other industry professionals who can you know, give good critical feedback. And periodically they come to me with, hey, have you seen this? You should look into this a little bit. You know, is there anywhere that this can fit? And they've also served um, as advocates when we've tried to, you know, when we, once we've done something, we need help getting it out there. And they're definitely helpful that way in using their own networks to kind of push our research out there. Or when we've got requests for participation, you know, they're helpful in getting that word out as well so that we're not solely reliant on overdrive for those kinds of things. I think libraries are generally pretty impressed with Overdrive and that they um, really do support a lot of libraries. I mean, obviously there are library vendors or they're going to, but they really seem to push it more than they really have to um, in, in their support of doing things like Panorama Project. Um, so I think, and, and, and continuing to fund that, because it's not like something they did like a short-term project, but that's kind of a long-term investment here. So I, I, I at least appreciate that. I won't speak for anybody else, I guess, but, um, and I always, um, I always enjoyed their parties at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm always reluctant to speak too highly of them to avoid any sense of you know, um, undue influence. But I've been pleasantly surprised to, you know, I was familiar with them from the library journal, school library journal side as a vendor and always had a pretty positive perception of uh, their overall impact on the industry, uh, particularly as they've grown to the point where you know, they're arguably the Amazon of the public library world. And I'd go to the go to bat to also argue that they are not the negative uh, presence and Amazon of the library world could potentially be. Uh, no company is perfect, but I, I do think they do a good job of living up to that B Corp uh, aspect of their presence. And personally, their support of Panorama is kind of, and their hands-off support in particular, has uh, you know been really convincing of what I always suspected that despite being a big company that exists to make money, um, they genuinely act as a partner for libraries. And, you know, as 
in, I, I won't say as more than a partner to publishers, but I feel like they, when lines are drawn, they have proven that they stand with libraries pretty firmly, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. And yeah, I, I should say, I think this leads into another topic I wanted to talk to you about. Some of the, one of the problems sometimes people have with Overdrive is their deal with Amazon, which is good for consumers and on the consumer end because, oh, look, I can use it on my Kindle. I can use my Kindle app, this, that. But that's also a bunch of data that's getting dumped for Amazon's purposes. So I use that sort of to <laughs> transition to um, how does Panorama um, t- think about and um, ensure privacy and security and data integrity when you're getting all this, obviously, data that could be identifiable, but how do you make it not so? So any data that I get to work with on the Panorama side is already uh, stripped. So the, the main source of data right now for our ongoing projects are related to Panorama picks. And so what I get there is um, output from OverDrive around circulation of titles that has been completely anonymized and aggregated. So I'm not seeing individual libraries. What I do get is regionalized uh, views of the data, which are not even based on any library uh, perception of regions. They're actually aligned to the American Booksellers Association's uh, regional associations, um, because our goal there is ultimately to provide data that might be useful to booksellers by showing what's circulating in libraries beyond the obvious stuff. Um, so the data I'm getting uh, doesn't you know, include any, I don't even know what libraries, you know, I could look at, all right, here's the six states in this region, what libraries are in that region and which ones are overdrive customers. So you could theoretically you know, backtrack that far, but beyond that, you know, what you see publicly the only thing that's not shared publicly that I get to see is the actual holes ratios, which is data that OverDrive and libraries to some degree don't want publicized. But even that's not individual data. That's title level data. Um, privacy was one of the big concerns on publisher's side, um, particularly around when you know Panorama was initially thinking about building this data repository that could be analyzed Publishers' big concern was, well, how do you know? How does Macmillan know PRH isn't going to see their data if we're funneling it all to Panorama? And there actually were some. There was some technical work done to spec out what that repository would look like to ensure that uh, privacy was retained. But it never moved past the development phase. It basically became. It was priced out to be such a significant investment that until publishers were one hundred percent on board wasn't going to move forward and publishers weren't 100% on board. So it didn't move forward. So from that perspective, you know, the, from a library and patron perspective, I'm not dealing with any sort of data uh, that has any privacy concerns and where we are dealing with data that we publicize. um, Our goal at Panorama is to be as transparent as possible. So I, you know, my ideal is I want to release as much data. So here's our findings, but also here's the data. Look at it yourself. So as much as possible, we put out whatever we can. So Panorama picks, I don't just show you the list. I show you the math that uh, fed that list. With this consumer research, when we're done, when we release the findings, we're also going to release, you know, the full survey tool as well as the um, raw data so that people can do some analysis themselves 
And that was a big part of uh, Portland State agreeing to uh, partner with us on it. And to Overdrive's credit, that was an important part because they totally could have been like, hey, we're, you know, we're helping fund this thing. We want that to be proprietary data. And fortunately with this initiative, that's one thing Panorama will be able to do is make, you know, not just here's our findings, but also here's the underlying data. Well, you mentioned um, Panorama Picks in there. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about what that is? So um, at its core, Panorama Picks is really meant to show, <clears throat> look at what's circulating from a recent front list. Not, so backlist technically is any book that's a year, uh, was released a year ago or older. Bookstores generally, unless it's, you know, where the crawdad's sing or something like that, once a book hits a year, or older, if it's not part of a series, it probably got returned if it's not a consistent seller. So what Panorama Picks does is, well, there's a window here where here's the best sellers. Everybody's talking about those, the, you know, an entire part of the industry, particularly the corporate publishing side, is built around hitting that bestseller list and then staying on it as long as possible. And that is a fraction of all the books published in any given month or never mind a year. So with Panorama Picks, what we developed was a formula that said, okay, let's look at what's circulating in libraries over a period of time. In that period of time, we've the circulation period is the previous quarter, but the publication date, those books are at least uh, three months old, if not, uh, I think it's three to 12 months. So potentially as old as a year, but past its initial marketing uh, aiming for the best seller list window. Most books, unless they've hit the list and you know have found legs on their own, publishers have moved on. It, and one of the interesting things about Macmillan's defining that eight-week window for the embargo is it said a lot about when most books' primary selling window was, at least as far as Macmillan was concerned. So we also factored that in when we made some updates to our parameters late last year. So the goal with these picks is A, to look at what's circulating in libraries, not just in overall demand, but what we call unmet demand. So this isn't just, you know, here's the top 10 non-New York Times bestsellers. This is the top 25 based on demand divided by holes. So some books may be in high demand and libraries are keeping that hold ratio at a three to one which tends to be kind of the ideal average for the big books. Realistically, though, there's a second tier of books that you know, aren't in demand the way Becoming is, but they haven't fallen off the radar. And there's demand there, and the hold ratios for those books are often 5 to 1, 8 to 1, 10 to 1, because they're not the big bestsellers that libraries are spending a lot of their budget on keeping... Uh, the whole list low. These are the books that library patrons want, and we divide it by regions for the ABA. So if you're a bookstore in upstate New York, and you look at the mid-Atlantic uh, panorama picks, you're going to probably find four or five books on that list that never had hit the bestseller list. You either never stopped because it didn't hit your radar, or you only bought one copy, but you shelved it spine out, and nobody knows it's there. It's an opportunity for public, uh, for booksellers to identify some books like, oh, hey, if this book is in demand in libraries, why don't I have it? Maybe I should feature it. Maybe I can build a whole uh, 
table around four or five of these picks because these aren't just national interest books. These are books that are specifically of interest in my area. And so one of the best aspects of Panorama Picks is where we pull out the unique demand. So some of these are kind of mid-tier books that did hit the bestseller list like the first week and then faded, and they're popular in four or five regions. The really interesting ones are the ones that pop in one region only. And sometimes there's a clear regional relationship, either the author is from there or the book is set there. And sometimes a complete mystery to the author and publisher themselves. And so the other aspect of Panorama Picks is that it also then becomes marketing opportunities, if not for the publisher who may have moved on from that book, for the author themselves to say, hey, you know, if my book is circulating as in demand in the Midwest, maybe I should target the Midwest for a book tour. Let me contact some libraries out there and you know, see if I can coordinate a reading or something like that. So it's a way to turn uh, interesting data into an actionable tool is ultimately really what Panorama Picks is about. And we publish it on a quarterly basis and we are able to customize it. So we did the research, we partnered with Washington Post over the summer and did an analysis of you know, what they had, they had identified five BISAC codes that uh, aligned with the, the books that were most commonly appearing on anti-racist and uh, social justice reading lists that had you know, really blown up in the early summer. And we were able to do a version of Panorama Picks that removed the publication date parameters to see, all right, in these categories, what books beyond these five that everybody's talking about are also uh, in you know, heavy demand. And we've not only found several interesting books unique to several regions, but the publications date, uh, dates range all the way back from 2003 all the way up to 2020. And if I remember correctly, only three of those books were actually published in 2020. So when publishers talk about libraries impacting, you know, those front list sales, it kind of ignores that the industry itself is driven by backlist. You know, NPD did their second quarter analysis and backlist was the highest percentage of total sales. I think it was 69% than it had ever been in their years measuring. And everything we see in the analysis we do in this library data, backlist is a big part of what's circulating. So yeah, five, you know, five or six books that everybody's talking about, those are in demand because they're in demand. Like libraries don't live in a vacuum. You know, library patrons are also consumers. They want to read what's popular. But what I find fascinating is the activity in the backlist that either isn't supported by local booksellers or, you know, let's be honest, there's what, 16,000 public library branches and, you know, including Barnes and Noble, 3,500 bookstores. There's big gaps across the country where libraries are the only place they're going to find your book or Amazon. So, you know, that's the other thing. Libraries in, you know, libraries are probably the best thing publishers have from an all Amazon world. Yeah, I, I heard from, I think it was like Arthur Levin or something. They, they were talking about, um, they said, well, we publish Harry Potter so that we could publish poetry. <laughs> but that's how they see it. They say, they see, we, we have to get these big, huge sales over here so we can publish this other stuff over here. So that's their viewpoint, at least, <laughs> seems to be. Um, yeah, no, and, there, and what's interesting is, you know, libraries, you know, there's no, one of the things I'm fighting for is a little more transparency around how much revenue do libraries actually contribute to trade publishing. Um, rough estimates are anywhere from 5 to 10%. Um, but for the smaller publishers and the smaller imprints, you know, the 
the poetry that's getting published because of Harry Potter. It's hard to find hard data, but anecdotally, libraries represent a bigger percentage of the sales of those books. And that's one of the biggest concerns around the focus on front list and libraries, in particular, ebook budgets getting devoured by expensive front list ebooks. If they have to meet that demand, publish, you know, that, that Harry Potter that's enabling that poetry book, you're killing the market for that poetry book with some of your other business decisions in pricing. So it's great you have published that poetry book. Who's going to buy it? Libraries are going to buy fewer copies now because they've got to spend more money because you've decided becoming should cost, you know, $300 (laughs) to keep in stock for two years. Yeah. And I I guess I should say we will acknowledge that um, Harry Potter is probably a bad example nowadays (laughs) because Ms. Rowling is a bit of (laughs) a problematic person these days, but (laughs) he is, but you know, her book is still, despite that, it's probably top, selling for Scholastic still. I mean, the whole series probably is probably yeah. the top seven sellers. It's probably the Harry Potter series still. I don't doubt it. So to wrap up, um, do you still feel optimistic about the future of reading? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, you know, my closing remarks at Digital Book World 2010, which is what you might be referring to, um, my argument there was, you know, back then there was a lot of gloom and doom and technology is going to kill publishing, print is going to die, eBooks are the future, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, one thing I always looked back on is like, you know, oh, everyone's going crazy over eBooks. Nobody talks about WordPress. Like you want to talk about one of the most transformational things to happen in publishing. Blogspot and WordPress were way bigger in a lot of ways than the Kindle. They don't get equated in a lot of ways because the monetization of blogs went a very different route, but the democratization of reading and writing has dramatically changed well before the Kindle came along and, you know, 999 ebooks, you know, made, you know, reading more accessible. You know, a 999 ebook doesn't make reading accessible. You still got to buy it. Libraries make reading accessible. The internet makes reading accessible. And all we've seen in the 10 years since is an insatiable demand in things for things to read and the in some ways if you look at you know the growth of audiobooks the growth of podcasts you know one thing i find interesting is there's a there's a valid argument that audiobooks count as reading you never hear anybody make that argument about podcasts they treat podcasts like music well if audiobooks are reading so are podcasts and podcasts grew for a variety of reasons but in my mind that is also a reflection of the demand, you know, the increased demand for things to read, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you look at other mediums, you know, streaming has grown on the back of, you know, what's been called prestige TV, you know, more uh, stronger storytelling, moving away from the 30 minute sitcom with the canned laughter and everything. Gaming has increasingly become a story driven medium where um, immersive stories that you play for hundreds, literal hundreds of hours are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the industry. So, you know, from the myopic point of view of book publishers, reading is still huge and there's lots of optimism for it. But then when you step away from just book publishing's perception of reading, like the opportunities are endless and they're only limited by your decision to say, well, we just publish books. None of that, the rest of that stuff doesn't really apply to us. 
Yeah, I read something that, uh, not not long ago that said, you know, basically that people are reading and writing more than they ever have in history because, I mean, it may be 280 characters at a time, um, but if, when you add all that up, people are just this unprecedented rate of just since the internet that they, you can just write and get your words out there. Yeah. I mean, I've read Twitter threads that have uh, kept me from reading full articles that I would have read in the past, you know, because it's a recognition that, hey, some information... You know, those seven tweets can get the heart of the story, and some people will go read that full article. But, you know, you meet the consumer where they are. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you so much for coming on and for doing your work um, with the Panorama Project. I think it's really important, again, to kind of look at this, not with necessarily hard data that we just do look at objectively, but more than making it more than just anecdotal to um, kind of show people the value of libraries and the value of the whole ecosystem. Cause you talked about booksellers as well, that booksellers, libraries, publishing, we're really all in this together. <laughs> and I think um, the Panorama project helps show that um, we're all kind of working together. I think for the same thing, even if we don't realize it sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. That's the goal. And uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, having the opportunity to talk about it. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you to follow up, how could they get in touch with you? So you can visit panoramaproject.org to learn more about our different initiatives, sign up for our mailing list. You can reach me directly at glecharles at panoramaproject.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at panorama, P-R-O-J-O-R-G, project. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jinky. Thank you. Bye. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at another window. I didn't even notice you came on. So. <laughs>